Hey everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to a very special episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You don't usually hear the show on a Monday, but here in the United States, it is Labor Day. And I thought it would be pretty neat to uh, take a look at a comic that stars, uh, well, one of the more identifiable folks with uh, Labor Day. At least uh, if you grew up when I did, or probably before, uh, that man is Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis hosted a telethon. Uh, on every Labor Day, which, uh, growing up uh, in the Northeast, signified the end of summer vacation. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, the day before school started, usually. It was on Labor Day. We'd usually go back to school the day after. So you come to really have this negative association with Jerry Lewis, despite uh, all the good he was trying to do for the uh, folks afflicted uh, with muscular dystrophy in their families. Uh, very noble cause, but... When you're a kid, and it just means that it's one day before you go back to school, it, you kind of get that negative association, unfortunately. And back in New York, it was the school year would run from you know the day after Labor Day till the end of June, and you'd start to see, you know, the Kids Are Us commercials would start to pick up like maybe mid July, you know, but you'd never really pay them too much mind. You, you kind of knew that they were. Uh, geared toward back to school, but, you know, you were only two or three weeks into your vacation, so you didn't give it much thought. Uh, before long, you'd be bombarded with back-to-school commercials, but then, you know, like the uh, like Gabriel's horn going off, you'd see the commercials for the upcoming Jerry Lewis uh, Labor Day telethon, and that's when you just knew that it's done. You know, this is, uh, this is another summer in the books, and uh, it's all <laughs> about to wrap up, so... I thought it would be neat to uh, to discuss uh, a Jerry Lewis comic book today uh, for folks who remember uh, fondly or otherwise the Jerry Lewis uh, Labor Day telethons and uh, maybe give you something Lewis-related to listen to on this Labor Day and uh, maybe Labor Days to come. Who knows? But uh, when I think about summer and, and comic books, I usually don't think so much about uh, particular comic books. Uh, for me... And I'm not sure if this had to do with release schedules or if it had to do with just, uh, uh, you know, the feeling in the air or maybe the fact that I didn't have a... Uh, I wasn't given lunch money during the summer, so I wasn't able to pocket any of it to buy comics or buy extra comics. Uh, I usually associate summer vacation with uh, with trading cards. And trading cards are uh, definitely a facet of the comics hobby, uh, the non-sports cards deals. They're, you know... Uh, I've been looking through some old magazines of late, and I've been sharing some of the images on, on social media, but it seemed like everything had a, a trading card set back then. Um, I, I shared uh, on social media the other night a uh, an Abraham Lincoln assassination set. And uh, it, just to wrap your head around that, it's like, who, who was demanding this, you know? Uh, we have all of these things in book form. If you're a researcher, there you go. You have the the information there. Why do you need a trading card set? And uh, you gotta wonder what the, uh, you know, what are the what are the speculatory cards in that? It, it, I I made a joke that maybe there's like a a, a rub the blood one like that uh, like that Liefeld uh, image book. You know, it's just so weird. But uh, my bread and butter growing up was uh, the Marvel Universe uh, trading cards, and my first one was series three. I missed out on the first two, just didn't pay him any, any mind, really, because the only place I was able to find them was a comic shop. I never thought to look outside of a comic shop for tra comic book trading cards. 
So I'd go and a pack of cards would be, at the very least, $2. And at that point, you could buy almost two whole comic books for the price of one pack of cards. And uh, in my, you know, peanut mind, that was what was going to take precedence, was the books themselves rather than the cards. So really didn't pay him much mind for the first two. Uh, The third one, it was going to be the the same way. I wasn't going to pay much attention to these cards. I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to, you know, break my back or whatever little bank I had to procure them. Uh, and if you know anything about me, I am very uh, obsessive, I guess. Uh, <laughs> where if, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. I, if, I get, if I'm going to do this, I have to get every single one. And, I mean, this is a 200-card set. And I think the packs came in, in eight cards. Maybe, maybe I might be mistaken. I, it's been a long time since I bought a pack of cards, but... Uh, I wouldn't assume they'd be that much more than eight, maybe ten cards for a pack. And uh, so if I got extremely lucky and every single pack I bought had brand new cards in it, that's still going to ten, that's twenty packs. So that's twenty times two is at least forty dollars to get this set. And uh, just outside of the realm of possibility for me. I mean, after all, uh, add a couple bucks to that forty, and I can buy a, a brand new video game. So, it's uh, it's all about those uh, the valuations of our uh, of our hobby wares, I suppose. And if you take into account that there are also the, you know, these rare hologram cards. Uh, this set had five cards. You had a Hulk, a Thing, a Wolverine, a Venom, and a Ghost Rider. And uh, the thought of finding them is like is actually like finding gold. And uh, in all the packs I did wind up buying, I've only found three. Uh, and I bought a lot of packs of the stuff, uh, as, as we'll get to here in a bit. Uh, we, being a friend of mine, we... You know when you're a kid and, like, you, you you could just make a day out of just about anything. And it's the summertime, you got nowhere to be. So you just, I don't know, make a nuisance of yourself by loitering just about anywhere they don't kick you out of. So... You might wind up walking around, you know, the Genovese Pharmacy for two hours, just walking around because you have nothing else to do. Or you might walk around the Seven Eleven for a half hour because there's nowhere to be. And uh, we were actually in, uh, in the town of Sayville, which was a couple of towns over. We were in a pharmacy, and we were just walking around a pharmacy because there was nothing else to do. And we get up to toward the counter. I I think we were on a. Uh, we were on a, a kick where we would buy uh, Fifth Avenue candy bars. We would always buy these Fifth Avenue candy bars. And uh, so we were buying off Fifth Avenue candy bars. And then we looked on the counter and they had a pack, they had a box of these Marvel Series 3 cards. And instead of being priced at like $2 or $2.50, they were priced at, and I remember this number for the stupid reasons you think I remember this number, they were $0.69 cents each. I was 12 years old. It was 69 We laughed. It was funny, you know. So uh, we put the put the candy bars back and we bought a few packs of these cards and uh, we treated it like we were stealing them because we had been trained to think that these things were worth so much more. And so we popped them open and uh, I remember in my very first pack, I, I found the two rare cards for the set, which was Cable and Wolverine. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Wizard Magazine in a bit here, but... 
my buddy was so annoyed because I think he got doubles with the two packs he bought. So, and I wound up getting just these two, you know, the two primo cards that you want if you're going to be collecting this set. Um, you know, the wizard price guide uh, gets a lot of flack, and uh, it also gets a lot of play. You know, when when people wax nostalgic about Wizard Magazine, one of the things they're talking about is uh, is the price guide and how they used it. And uh, you know, if you're not from that time. You might not know that they actually had a trading card price guide as well Where they actually listed every single card in a set So if you had a 200 card set You had 200 listings where each one was priced uh, I'm looking at one right now from uh, Wizard uh, Magazine number 10 This is the June 1992 edition And it has all 200 of these Series 3 cards priced And this is actually before they hit market so they had them priced before they even became available. And I'm looking here at, uh, you know, card number 116, Sauron, 10 cents. Card 120, Carnage, 20 cents. It's, they actually took the time to price these out for nickel and dime prices. And uh, just the very thought of that is, is amazing. And this is, you know, this is before you could just Google anything on the internet. This is actually something they had to type up, print out, and distribute. Uh, those two cards I was talking about, the Cable and the Wolverine, those were each worth a quarter. So those were, uh, I tell you what, those are the big ones. Those are the ones you want the doubles of because you can you can trade those in for you know just about anything. You punch your own ticket when you have a Cable and a Wolverine card from Marvel Universe Series Three. But you know, as I mentioned, I uh, I tend to get obsessed with things. So uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. I needed I needed all these cards and. Uh, I started visiting places like baseball card stores. I never thought to check a baseball card store before. But uh, there I go. I go into one, and they've got like a box full of uh, single cards. And uh, it's funny because some of them actually use the Wizard Price Guide. A lot of them would have, they'd have like the few, like the Cable and the Wolverine would be out for like a buck each, but everything else would be like a dime. But there were actually card stores that had each individual card priced and marked so like you'd have the carnage uh the carnage card for 20 cents instead of being in there with the other 10 cent ones and uh just the very thought of that now is insane and i'm so far removed from uh the the trading card game so as far as i know a marvel and dc still put cards out and b there are still shops out there that price them like this I know that the trading card games Like Magic and Pokemon and stuff I, I know that those can be pretty hardcore With uh, uh, specificity and and, uh, and pricing uh, To market uh, value or whatever But these were just You know, this was just a set of trading cards So you really uh, You know, I'm not going to overpower one card with another And, uh, and you know, my, my Puppet Master uh, card Is not going to win me a tournament or something So I don't see the the values as being uh, as being equitable, I suppose. But you know, I go to these shops and uh, I go to one. It's a, a card store outside of the Pathmark at the Sunvet Mall. That's a place I've mentioned a time or two before. That's uh, the place where I first went to a mall convention. Was outside that store, so I was there. My parents were doing the weekly grocery shopping, and I was in there and I saw a box of uh, Marvel Series One and Two. Trading card singles And uh, they were all marked at a dime And uh, I was able to buy just a handful of them Because, you know, I didn't have You know, big money to spend On trading cards, but uh, 
I, <laughs> I was such a little jerk. My friends asked me where I got them, and I told them that uh, I told them that we were visiting family in Brooklyn, and I found them in a shop in Brooklyn because I didn't want anyone to know my secret, like that that you could get these cards just a couple miles down the road. I wanted to make sure that uh, such a jerk thing to do, but uh, I wanted to make sure that I had access to these cards and no one else did. So I I lied and said that they were. Uh, <laughs> they were 45 minutes away in Brooklyn, so. But uh, I've eventually uh, did get through my uh, my Series Three collection, and the card that eluded uh, me for better part of a year it was a, a team up card. It was a Captain America and U.S. Agent uh, team up card, and I I dreamt about this card mostly because I had no idea what what a U.S. Agent was. I didn't know who he was. I wasn't really in ingrained in Marvel lore at this point. I was an X-Men guy. You know, I read the X-Men books. Uh, I might read some Spider-Man, but I never really got into the other stuff. So when I see U.S. agent, I'm picturing like like a secret agent in a trench coat. You know, like with a with a fedora. So I'm picturing like I'm like fantasizing about what this card might look at. We look like we didn't have the internet, so it was like, what does this card look like? Is it is it Captain America next to this dude in a trench coat with a fedora? <laughs> uh, little did I know that it's just basically two Captain Americas, you know, coming coming right at you. But at the time, man, I was just the just the the speculation on what that card might look like was just. Uh, just insane, and I'm looking at the card right here. It was card, <laughs> it was, it was card number 83 in the set. And in the Wizard uh, Price Guide gives it a valuation of 10 cents. So this was one of the, one of the you know common cards, the cards that uh, are just going to be chucked into that pile to uh, to be traded away. And uh, for whatever reason, I just couldn't find the damn thing. And uh, finally did. I don't remember how, which is weird. I should remember how. Uh, but I did come across it either in a pack that I bought out of frustration or, or desperation, or I found it in a, in one of them boxes where they put cards to be sold. Whatever the case was, I did manage to find it, and I did manage to complete my set, all except for the, uh, the holograms, uh, two of which still elude me to this day. I'm sure I could find them anywhere, but, uh, really, they just don't go through my head <laughs> As often as they should, I guess But uh, I remember Going back to school uh, Back in, it's gotta be 1992 uh, 1992 was like My seminal comics year Like uh, I think 80% of my comics memories come from 1992 You have these trading cards You got the Death of Superman You got the Executionist song Image Comics launching it, uh, So much of what informs My fandom comes from 1992 And they do say that, you know, pop culture peaks when you're 12, and I just happened to be 12 in 1992. But, you know, we go back to school after, of course, the Jerry Lewis telethon, which, you know, we will be getting to Jerry in a bit. But uh, there were these uh, you know, schoolyard rumors, which is one of those things that I I haven't been in a schoolyard in forever, so I don't know if this is something that still goes on. You know, back in the day, you'd always know someone whose uncle worked at Nintendo and had, uh, you know, the, the prototype games and stuff, and... And, you know, there were all the uh, the video game cheat codes that could, uh, you know, make... You, know, you can make Mario run around with a, you know, different color outfit on or maybe no outfit at all. You know, whatever whatever floats your boat, I guess. 
But uh, there were all these schoolyard rumors, which I think uh, kids growing up in the digital age and the social media age that we're in now, they don't really have that magic that we used to have uh, back in the 80s and 90s when it comes to things like schoolyard lore. Because uh, the Marvel Universe trading card set had a bit of its own. And actually all trading card sets did because... There was always that one kid who knew someone or who was related to someone who knew someone who knew or knew somebody who was related to somebody who worked at some level of the trading card company, whether in distribution and packaging and executive management. And they always had the secret. You know, they knew they would tell you, you know, well, if you go to the go to the store and you dig down like four packs on the bottom left-hand side, there's always going to be a hologram. And of course, that's what you'd do. You'd run home and you'd, you'd grab your money and you'd go out to the store and you'd do that thing and you'd, you know, you'd never get lucky. It would always be just a, you know, a regular pack of cards. And, uh, but, you know, these rumors persisted. And I, I'm pretty sure I've shared this story a time or two before, but uh, I just don't remember where, or even if it was being recorded, but, uh, I remember when some of the shops got wind of this, because at this point we knew that we could find these things at uh, drugstores and at uh, candy shops and sometimes even in supermarkets. Uh, they'd be put you know, behind the counter, and uh, you'd have to ask them for a pack, and they would pick a pack for you. Because they, or they would shuffle the pack, or they'd shuffle the box up, because they knew about these you know, hard and fast, uh, empirically proven... Uh, <laughs> Rules for uh, where the holograms are So It, it just became a whole thing And uh, it's one of those things That I, I I think about Probably every summer Because this is just what my summers became uh, In junior high It became all about these trading card sets And then it grew into The Marvel Masterworks And the X-Men cards And the uh, you know, the Batman Nightfall cards And the Death of Superman cards And it, just so many binders full of cards and boxes full of cards, and uh, that's just a uh, that was just what uh, summers became for uh, for me and my friends. Uh, we'd still keep up with comics, of course, but it became more about uh, getting these cards because the comics were we were going to get them regardless. This is just were the next evolution of uh, of our fandom and our hobby ship, I suppose. Even moving into the uh, that Executioner song I mentioned, that X-Men crossover from the fall of 1992, uh, those were all released with with cards. You know, they were polybagged issues, and they each came with a trading card. Uh, X-Force, number one notably, came with like four or five different trading cards. You'd have to buy five copies if you wanted all five cards. I mean, this is cards just became huge, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, we really discuss them as much uh, these days, uh, where... Whereas gimmicks like, you know, the hologram covers for comics or variant covers or die-cut covers or rub-the-blood covers, we talk about those a lot. But uh, the polybagged with card, you know, that was a big deal. Uh, even like Wizard Magazine would come polybagged with cards. I was flipping through an issue of Wizard just, uh, just this morning, and uh, one of the cards that came with... I think it was issue 15 of Wizard was selling for like 60 bucks. Of, of course, they set the price for the price guide, but I mean, it's just it's just crazy to consider that uh, that these things were going for such crazy prices. And uh, 
And for so many of them, they were freebies. You know, they were just things thrown in to uh, to give value to a magazine or uh, or a comic book. Even things like previews catalogs. Uh, that's one thing that, uh, for some reason, I can't bring myself to throw out. Uh, I've got probably a couple hundred previews magazines, uh, previews catalogs that are just cluttering up uh, a closet right now. But I can't bring myself to get rid of them because... Some of them came with, like, sheets of cards embedded in the binding, you know? It's, it's just so weird to... What, what, these, what these cards that are meaningless uh, will do to give a, a perception of value to something that uh, is really just a fire hazard at the end of the day. But that's probably about all I've got for uh, a little bit of trading card chat here. I've just been in kind of a trading card kind of mood. I, I discovered my binders not too long ago with, uh, with all my sets, and, uh, and I've been going through these old magazines, and it seems like there's more, there's more a- advertisements for uh, trading cards and comics and a lot of these things. So just in a, in a very trading cardy kind of headspace. So I thought I'd share what little bit uh, of, a, of a personal history I have with the, with the medium, <laughs> with you guys here. Uh, if you guys have any stories about your trading card fandom, I'd love to hear them. Uh, if, you're, if you're a collector of those weird sets, if you've got the serial killer sets or the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln sets, I'd, I'd love to see pictures or hear stories of how you uh, came to discover them or, or how much, how much you, uh, you paid for them because uh, these things weren't cheap back in the day either. So if you have any stories like that, definitely hit me up. Uh, I'd love to hear them. But uh, for now, we'll head to the horns, and uh, then we will ring in the end of summer together. Okie dokie, it's Adventures of Jerry Lewis, issue 105, has a cover date of March-April 1968, and it's hard to believe that a Jerry Lewis or a Dean Dean Martin slash Jerry Lewis comic ran for 105 issues, but it happened. Uh, This story is called Superman Meets Jerry. It was written by Arnold Drake, penciled by Bob Oxner, with letters by Ira Schnapp, at a cover price of 12 cents, and uh, those are all the credits that I was able to find. This is one of those that, uh, you know, it's hard to find full credits on a lot of these things. I don't know who colored it. I don't know if uh, if Oxner also inked it, or if there was any inker listed. You just don't know with some of these older books here. Now, we open with Uncle Jerry Lewis, his nephew Renfrew, and their... I think it's their housekeeper. Uh, her name is W. Craft, and the W stands for witch, naturally. If you could see her, you could tell she's a witch, and her full name is Witchcraft. They're watching televised coverage of Superman fighting a cosmic creature, which looks like a scrawny dragon. Uh, this might just be a variation on the uh, DC villain trope that I love to hate, the, uh, you know, the nameless lizard man. Uh, only this one has wings. Initially, I thought they were watching the George Reeves uh, Superman program, The Adventures of Superman, but no, this is actually the real steel deal. They're actually watching a news report, which tells me that uh, Jerry Lewis is part of the DC Universe. Uh, So this gets filed with my regular DC Universe titles instead of the DC Etc. books. So that's uh, one one thing I don't have to worry about. Anyway, as they watch, Renfrew and Jerry have a difficult time opening a bag of generic brand potato chips. We shift scenes to the fight itself, uh, where the news reporters comment that for the past three days, Superman has done nothing but fight creatures from outer space. Finally, the Man of Steel hurls an automobile at the beastie and then tears its head off, 
which is a pretty hardcore move for Superman. Of course, by now he'd already deduced that this was more machine than monster, so uh, you know he just busted up a robot. No harm, no foul. Elsewhere, the monster maker himself, Lex Luthor, smiles, because this means Superman has fallen right into his trap. Now you see, this robot was stuffed with high quantities of a... Get this, a low-grade kryptonite. Uh, you know, maybe the dollar store variation of kryptonite, uh, which has now covered Superman's costume. So, this you know, low-grade kryptonite will slowly and uh, unnoticeably uh, hinder Superman's abilities until it's far too late. Lex intends to use his kryptonite counter to track Superman and find out his secret identity before he dies, which is uh, you know, pretty sporting of old Lex. I mean... Why not just put high-grade kryptonite in the robot and kill Superman right there on the spot? Uh, either way, it turns out that uh, maybe this plan isn't going quite to uh, Lex's desires here because Superman's already feeling some effects. In fact, after slipping into a phone booth to change clothes, he falls asleep. Later on, he returns to work at the Daily Planet. He's hopeful he'll get a minute or two to rest. However, Perry White has different plans. Clark's going to have to take point covering a present crisis. The pre-teen jungle. You see, teenagers are currently the number two public enemy, after China, of course. Jimmy on the spot provides some hard data, and let me tell you, it's pretty sobering stuff. Did you know that 72% of all parents of preteens are frightened by them? Well, get this one. Did you know 58% of music recordings are purchased by them? I mean, this is just horrifying data. Clark knows when he's beat, and he wouldn't want to have to forfeit his Superman of America membership card, so he agrees to visit with who the planet's computers have identified as the most typical average representative preteen. And that is, of course, Renfrew... what's-his-face? Maybe it's Lewis, I don't know. Renfrew Lewis, we'll call him. He rings the doorbell, which interrupts their fall cleaning, which uh, is a comically uh, you know, stacked milieu of furniture dangling over Renfrew's head. Uh, Clark enters to see the house in shambles. He introduces himself and informs Jerry that Renfrew is the most average yada 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 yada. Jerry's intrigued, and, and he invites Clark to take a seat, if he can find one among the mess. Jerry himself sits down on their destroyed television set, which is unfortunately still plugged in. Before you know it, Jerry is electrified, and he's seeing the colors, man. As the grown-ups chat, Renfrew goes about being an all-around nuisance. Gives Clark Kent a hot foot, and then douses it with a pan of water. Both things which somehow Clark feels, you see. How can that be? He actually feels pain here. That's weird. Jerry guides a now-soaked Clark to the bathroom so he can get out of his wet duds. He decides to stash the Superman costume at the bottom of the hamper, which is... probably a terrible idea, right? Maybe? That's really dumb? Uh, Anywho, Jerry offers Clark some of his clothes to wear while his dry. And wouldn't you know it, Jerry's maid, Witchcraft, chooses right that very moment to do some laundry. She presents the costume to Jerry, who does, well, probably exactly what any of us would do in the same situation. He, he tries the bad boy on. I can't say that he fills it out as good as Superman, or, hell, even as good as I would, but, uh, you know, at least I have a little bit of roundness in the middle to fill the thing in. At this very moment, Clark's superpowers have started to return. Remember, that low-grade kryptonite has covered his costume, but the costume's not on anymore, so the effects have lessened. Anyway, he can see via his x-ray vision that Lex Luthor and Amook have arrived. 
After a quick turn of the head, Jerry can also see that Jerry Lewis is wearing his costume. Uh-oh, if he doesn't act fast, it looks like Jerry is gonna die. Unfortunately, while his x-ray vision has returned, his super speed and strength have not. Clark KOs himself, trying to run through the wall, which is uh, pretty funny. In the bathroom, Lex starts to threaten Jerry Lewis, to which Jerry bites Lex's finger. Uh, he also wraps him in a shower curtain and runs away. You'd think he really was Superman until you realize that he just left an armed man with an itchy trigger, trigger finger in the same house as his young nephew, which you'd hope Superman wouldn't do, but then again, Superman did just stash his costume in Jerry Lewis's hamper. Uh, the whole thing's moot, however, because uh, Lex and his mook give chase, firing shots with every step. Shots which are being deflected by the Superman costume. Renfrew must have heard the gunshots because he runs to witchcraft to inform her that Uncle Jerry's in a whole mess of trouble. Meanwhile, Clark comes to, and with the costume even further away, more of his powers have returned. With the grace of a hippo on a lily pad, he fumbles through the wall of the Lewis home. Just then, Kraft and Renfrew have... Already caught up with Lex and the Mook? Eh, neither of whom have any qualms about unloading the gu a gun in the direction of a woman and child. It's really quite a scene here. They're just opening fire on a little, the, the most average teen-ager teen in the planet. One of Lex's bullets hits Kraft's broom. Remember, she is a witch. This sends them both flying. Kraft, being an accidental altruist, takes the brunt of the landing. Renfrew bounces off her belly, at which point Clark has regained his powers completely and flies through an entire city block to catch him. We return to Jerry as he makes it to the junkyard, and he decides to hide under a tub full of potato soup. Okay, well, the tub allegedly weighs 100 pounds, and Jerry lifted it without any trouble at all, so how can that be? Well, lucky for him, Clark Kent is hiding in a nearby tree, performing some su super suction with a pinpoint accuracy. That is, until he sucks up a bird accidentally. Anyhow, by now, Witchcraft has come to and has also arrived at the junkyard. She whips up a mighty wind to send Luther and the Mook flying. At the very same time, the feathers of the bird that Clark inhaled begin to tickle his allergies, and so he super sneezes the thing right into Kraft's dome. It's funny, half of Clark's sneeze is in, like, the thought balloon. You know, it's, uh, he's got a thought balloon going, balloon going uh, 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 and then he sneezes out, so... I don't know how you do that. I think that'd be an interesting thing to try one day. With Kraft KO'd again, Lex and the Mook hit the ground. In the distraction, Clark sucks the Superman costume off of Jerry's body, and uh, yeah, I know exactly how that sounded. After catching it, he blows the kryptonite dust off of it, and he's back in action, socking Lex in the mush before calling it a day. Our tale concludes with Jerry reading the latest edition of the Daily Planet, whose headline reads, Clark Kent, Superstar Reporter, Missing, with uh, several commas, almost as many as I usually do, uh, but not nearly as many ellipses as I usually do. Now, this is a lot of fun here. Uh, I've discussed a couple of Jerry Lewis books on the website, and uh, they're usually... Uh, you know, they're, they're not so much bad, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're really difficult to critique. You know, you really can't draw uh, many uh, criticisms towards a, a comedy book, especially of the era. Um, I, you know, I've, I've got like a bunch of like funny animal books, and I always want to do them on the blog, but uh, in thinking it through, it's like, what am I going to say about, you know, a comic with 
uh, Peter Panda, you know, I, I, what am I going to do besides say this was funny or wasn't funny and the fact that I'm, you know, pushing 40 and these things were written for people pushing four, it's, you know, it's hard to do. But for this book in particular, it was, it was pretty funny. Um, you know, about 100% positive that much of this had to do with the inclusion of Superman. Uh, sight gags are kind of a thing in this book, and to see those gags happen to Superman rather than Jerry Lewis himself was a bit more fun than you might expect. I mean, we're used to seeing Jerry Lewis fumble and stumble and fall through walls and have things hit him in the head, but we don't usually get to see Superman go through that rigmarole, so that was uh, a lot of fun. I mean, we saw him suck a bird in using his super breath. It's one of those things that, you know, should happen all the time anytime he uses a super breath, but uh, doesn't. So that was pretty funny. Um, and the thing of it is, is it triggers his allergies. So we're, we're, we're to expect that that Superman has allergies, which... You know, you don't think about either. Uh, the storytelling device here was well used. Uh, having the costume riddled with this low-grade kryptonite was a pretty good idea, and it it helped to facilitate the entire affair without feeling completely gimmicky. Yeah, I joked about Lex going this route instead of just killing Superman, but, uh, I mean, this was the Silver Age, or the tail end of the Silver Age. And uh, you think about some of the things that Lex would do. He would build a billion-dollar robot to steal $50,000 from the bank, so... I think we can allow this little uh, lapse in uh, sadism from uh, old Lex here. Now, anybody who's gone to the blog or listened to anything I've said over the past several years, they know that I'm a huge fan of lore. You know, I love that. I love the the idea that everything matters and everything has a place in this like woven tapestry of uh, the DC universe. Even if it's just like a here and again sort of thing, it makes me very happy. So seeing that, you know, this is actually Superman showing up. This isn't, you know, like the issue of Sledgehammer where a guy in a Spider-Man costume shows up. That This is actually Superman. So if we were to, like, chronologically index every appearance, this book here would be among those appearances. You know, this is something that actually happened. Um, you know, this does make my main takeaway from this that I need to actually seek out more uh, potentially uh, expensive issues of Jerry Lewis for my collection. Uh, it, it, there have been stories where he meets the Flash. He meets Wonder Woman. He meets Batman and Robin. And uh, I'm sure that one or two of those ain't going to be cheap. So I, I definitely got to track them down if I can. I don't think these have been collected in trade. Um, but... It really shouldn't, you know, shouldn't break the bank, and I'm sure you could find it if you know where to look. Uh, but if you do happen across any of these, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely give it a look. It's a lot of fun, and it's a, a really neat uh, little time capsule for uh, the uh, Silver Age DC universe. All right, now right into our hot take here. This is going to be a uh, Titans flavored. Uh, uh, hot take here, where we're going to look at the letters page from Tales of the Teen Titans number 47, cover dated October 1984, and these letters will all be about the end of the Judas Contract. Now, Reggie and I have discussed the Judas Contract on a very early uh, Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, it might be do a revisit, because we were doing things uh, a bit differently back then. Uh, we were uh, trying to keep things on the shorter side and didn't uh, didn't go in the weeds all that often. So uh, maybe we'll do another Judas contract somewhere down the line. But uh, let's get into this letters page here. It starts with a little missive from uh, from Marv here. It says, Dear readers, 
Mail on Tales of the Teen Titans number 44 and our Terra Terminator conclusion in annual number 3 is unprecedented. In order that we can print as many of your letters as possible, I'm refraining from commenting on your letters until the end. And our first one comes from a Donald in Seattle. He says, Dear Marvin George, Amidst all the turmoil and tension brought on by the enactment of the Terminator slash Terra Judas contract, I couldn't help but feel a special warmth after finishing There Should Thou Shall Come a Titan. I can already see in Jericho a Titan who will be warm, compassionate, and gentle, but also a Titan who will be determined, firm, and a steadfast member of an already outstanding team. It was nice to read Tales number 44 and have the break before the final conflict coming in Titan's third annual. Not only was it a terrific way to introduce Jericho and reintroduce Dick as Nightwing to the group, but it was also... It was also the classic, clever Wolfman and Perez way to make every Titan fan nearly burst in anticipation of the conclusion to the Judas contract. I'm really disappointed that Terra didn't break away from the Terminator and truly become a full-fledged loyal Titan. I trust that after the dust settles from the upcoming battle with Terra and the Terminator, we'll get to see how each member of the team, uh, each team member, especially Gar, reacts to the discovery of Terra's betrayal. I know it'll be hard for each of them to accept and deal with, and I hope we'll get to see how this all finally comes to a head, how this all coming to a head affects Terra too. Personally, I'm crushed that Terra's going to end up the way she is. Why couldn't she have been a good little team member like her brother Brian over in The Outsiders? Some people ruin everything. Well, I'm excited. I know that whatever's in store for us in the Titans Annual, it's going to be great. I'll expect no less than another Wolfman Perez classic, don't let me down, guys. Until next time. And it's funny, it's all these years later and all these rereadings later of the Judas Contract, I, there's always that weird little part of me that wants Terra to, uh, to you know, see the uh, error of her ways and, uh, and become a Titan. You, know, you keep thinking, and, and it seems like every time I read it, I, I notice something that I didn't notice the time before because... You always get that glimmer of hope. No matter, you know, nobody's coming into my house and editing comics, so it's like you know it's going to end the same way. But you always have that little glimmer of hope that it'll all come back around, and uh, nah, it doesn't. Our next letter comes from Trevor in Massachusetts. It says, "Dear sirs, recently I attended the Boston Creation Convention in which you spoke about your respective books and numerous works. I very much enjoyed your talk and emphasis on the Robin changeover." All my life, my most favorite character has been Batman's partner, Dick Grayson. I was deeply hurt when I, some time ago, became aware of the plans to revamp this character, but now, over time and through much deep thought, I have come to accept this change. I think that this eventual acceptance is largely due to your masterful work at the changeover. In the past, I always enjoyed the team of young Teen Titans, uh, the old series perhaps most because of Robin's involvement. I now thoroughly enjoy your revisions of this wonderful team. I would like to thank you both from the bottom of my heart for the time that you took to speak at, to the comic enthusiasts of New England and for giving so much enjoyment through your endeavors. And this one actually has a uh, reply. I thought they were going to save all the replies to the very end. Uh, I guess not. We got Trevor. George and I enjoy going to conventions all over the country. As I write this answer, Georgia, George is in California doing a six-day comic shop tour. Uh, we're both set to go to San Diego Con in June. George is heading to North Carolina for a bookstore signing while I head to Chicago and then Atlanta later this summer. Please feel free to come up to us. I know a lot of you are occasionally shy about speaking up, but uh, we're here to speak to you. So let us know what you think, okay? Hope to see you all at this summer's cons. 
And uh, I actually did see uh, 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 George Perez and uh, Marv Wolfman at the Phoenix Comic Con back in 2016, and uh, they 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 both intimidated me. I didn't uh, <laughs> I did not approach. Uh, Marv looked uh, especially sour that day, so I did not want to be uh, in his face uh, asking questions about uh, about everything. So <laughs> I did not. Uh, our next letter comes from Conrad in Ontario, Canada. It says, Dear Marvin George, Tales of the Teen Titans 44, a landmark issue. Not only do we finally discover Terminator's origin, not only do we get a brand spanking new Titan named Jericho, but we're also introduced to Dick Grayson's new identity, Nightwing. Fantabulous. What else can I say? I'm certainly looking forward to the conclusion of the Judas Contract, but why did you decide to put Book 4 in an annual rather than in the actual Titans book itself? I know it shouldn't make that much difference, but, but I think annuals should be self-enclosed stories with a beginning and an end that don't rely too much on what has transpired in other issues. A trivial point to be sure, but one that I wanted to bring up anyway. Regardless of where the Judas Contract inclusion is or is not going to appear, one cannot help but wonder what you crafty devils have planned. It seems something big is going to happen, but what? I doubt Terra can continue as a titan after what she did to them. But what are you and or the Titans themselves going to do with her? I just shudder when I think about it. Traitor or not, Terra is still an intriguing and interesting character and I still like her. I hate to see her leave these pages, especially if it is a permanent, i.e. fatal, fashion. And uh, to which Marv replies with, Conrad, we originally planned to end the Terra Terminator story in a special double-size 45th issue, and not the annual... But circumstances forced us to change that plan and move the annual up from April uh, up to April instead of June. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the uh, Baxter series because that, that did follow not too long after uh, after the uh, Judas contract. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know what I feel about uh, annuals uh, being self-contained. Uh, so often, uh, especially lately, um, they are these just self-contained stories that feel just like inventory stories just things that don't matter and uh i do uh i do like the way that they did it back here with uh the judas contract where the annual was going to be an oversized thing anyway and they have this oversized story they got to put somewhere so why not tie it into the annual i have no problem with that um like i said i i'm i'm a completionist so i do buy all the annuals and I barely ever read them because they're just, they have nothing to do with anything. They, they're not relevant to whatever's going on in the, you know, quote-unquote, you know, prime book. So it's it just becomes a, a, you know, an endeavor and wasting time and ultimately wasting money, which I will continue to do regardless. Uh, they do mention here that uh, the Terminator's origin is covered, and it's uh, pretty good. It's uh, it, we, how we learn how he met uh, Adeline and... All that stuff, how he lost his eye. It's all good stuff. Uh, we talk, Reggie and I talk about it in that treadmill episode. It's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, next letter comes from Jill in Memphis. She says, Dear Marv Wolfman and George Perez, Woo, what a relief. Despite the evidence to the contrary, right until the last minute, I was afraid that my favorite sociopath might cast her lot with the Titans. It would, after all, have been so convenient, so cozy, so safe. I apologize to you both. Uh, you have... You, as much as anyone in comics, have earned the trust of your readers, and you did not fail that trust with the Judas con- Judas betrayal. That's the Judas contract, but what are you going to do? The tetra- tetralogy was not flawless. 
Too much time was devoted to the Terminator's experiences in Vietnam. Those flashbacks sh slowed Ish-44 and stopped the annual dead. And after Terra's working with the Titans for all these months, I would have welcomed a moment in which she anticipated and forestalled someone's habitual battle move or quirk. These are quibbles, however, uh, quite apart from the overall success of the story. So many small things were right. Dick's new name and costume and his reflections on them. Donna not knowing what to call Dick, and I bet lots of the readers will have that same problem. Changeling's butler telling the maid to cuff him. Gar and Terra's duel in issue 42, a scene which was both funny in itself and laid important ground for the annual. Donna and Corey hugging in issue 42, a scene genuinely felt sweet, yet kept from, kept from being cloying by Gar's and Terra's asides. Adeline Wilson, a wonderful character and one hell of a marksman, as the Terminator remarked back in issue 34. Uh, the very best small moment came when Terra laid out Jericho and Robin, and Nightwing, without, putting, without even putting down her cigarette. But nothing can compete with Terra bringing the house down on herself in as chilling a scene as any I've ever seen in comics, as chilling as anything in Tomb of Dracula. I think it was the garbling and human sounds that got me. Terra may be peacefully in the ground, but the ramifications of her betrayal should affect the Titans for months. How willingly can they trust anyone again? How can they trust their own judgments? How can they trust Jericho and poor Gar, who, does, who just tries so hard to make everyone love him, and who has succeeded with me? This may be the event that propels him out of, the, out of adolescence. That would be a shame in many ways. He's only 16 and has a lot... He has a right to be immature. However, he must accept Terra's betrayal. He may take up an ostrich's form, but I think he has intelligence not to act like one. For months to come, whenever he opens his mouth to make a joke, he should hear Terra asking, why do you act like such a jerk all the time? And hear the rage and hatred and contempt beneath that earnest voice. Could be years before he gets he feels secure enough to kiss another girl. A lot of great points there from Jill that I meandered through here as best I could. Uh, Gar, growing up, was uh, a focus of the, uh, of the Titan series going forward. Uh, it led to one of my very favorite single-issue books of all time. That's uh, Tales of the Teen Titans, number 55, where he and the uh, Terminator have their final face-off. Uh, that's probably an issue I should have covered on, on the show here, but I haven't yet. Um, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a letter hack here who thinks Terra should not have, re have not returned to the Titans, which I don't know was the prevailing opinion of the time. Uh, I know that's not my opinion. Uh, I don't know what my opinion would have been had I been reading it at the time, though. It's a, it, it, She presents a lot of great arguments for it, though, for not joining, for not turning good. Uh, just uh, a lot of uh, really good food for thought. And to her point about the Titans ever trusting anyone again, I think that is uh, very important, because when Terra's trying to become a member the Titans realize that they don't really have a protocol. You know, they haven't added anyone to the team, so they don't know if there's something they need to do. It's just, there, there is no anointment, you know? It's just a group of friends that happen to, uh, you know, be crime fighters. It's a very interesting dynamic, and uh, Terra's uh, in, incursion and uh, betrayal really... Uh, draws a heck of a line under the way the Titans did business before. Really gives you a lot to think about. Let's get to our next letter here from Todd in New Hampshire. It says, Dear Marvin George, Wow, you fellas really outdid yourselves this time around. 
You planned the perfect storyline to shame all those before it. It had adventures, romance, and a lot of surprises. Right up until the last frame, you had us guessing as to the fate of Terra. Though she deserved death and her power and madness made it impossible for her to survive, I still felt a pang of sorrow when she did die. But enough congratulations on the overall series. Let me tell you how I enjoyed the various other aspects of the story. Jericho has to receive the the award for the best new hero of the 80s and the most original. His powers and handicap make him a fine addition to the ranks of DC's finest team. And Jericho, I don't know about the finest hero, the best hero, but uh, he he certainly uh, certainly makes me think of the 80s, so I, I will give him that. Uh, Dick's new identity is fabulous, reminiscent of Batman and Superman, but also a reflection of the, of his, the coming of age of my favorite comics character, something long overdue. You also helped solve a problem I've had, whether I like the character Dick Grayson or Robin, and Dick Grayson in any uniform would be fine with me. The origin of the Terminator, probably the finest aspect of the series, provided us with the information to truly understand this complex character. In closing, I would just like to say one last thing. Thank you for the finest series ever in comics. Keep up the fine work. This dude likes the word fine. I can I can tell. Um, the uh, the deal with uh, the Terminator here is, uh, and, and you know I'm not saying anything nobody's heard or talked about before, but it's uh, the complexity of the Terminator is is the, like the key aspect of his character. He doesn't have a problem with the Titans. It's not personal to him. It's a it's a contract he's trying to fulfill, which is uh, really interesting because you, you know that there's like an underlying respect there, which is complex and uh, especially for for you know superhero comics, it might be might be on the uh, higher end of complexity at least back then. Our next letter comes from Peggy in Las Vegas. She says, "Dear Marvin George, the last time a comic made me cry was Phoenix Must Die in X Men number one thirty seven. Tales of the Teen Titans Annual number three was the most recent." It was excellent. I'm glad Geoforce doesn't know that his sister was insane. Thank you. Now, I don't know whether I want Finale or who is Donna Troy in the year's 10 best comic stories more. Well, put them both in. Well, I... That's that's actually... That's actually an interesting one. Uh, I, I usually default to who is Donna Troy for, you know, a favorite, but Judah's contract's up there, so that's a toughie. Uh, one thing she uh, that Peggy mentions here is that Geoforce was never told that Terra was a villain, which I think is really cool. Uh, the Titans had him there for the funeral and just said she died in action, basically. They didn't say that, you know, she didn't. She died of her own machinations and her own, you know, insanity. He, they just said she died heroically, and they gave her, you know, a Titan's burial, basically. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting part of it. Uh, he does eventually find out all that jazz, but... Uh, for this, this was a very touching ending to uh, the Judas Contract, and it uh, worked really well for me. Our next letter comes from Alan in Louisiana. He says, Dear Marvin George, I know that there have been numerous amounts of comics characters killed off in the past few years. I usually get ticked off when a character is slain. Now I wish I were at the DC offices so I could shake the hands of the people behind Titans Annual Number 3. The death of Terror was magnificent. You guys have done something that few people ever try to do. You guys have killed off a character worth killing off. I never did like the little snot anyway. She was arrogant, sarcastic, disrespectful, smart-alecky, belligerent, and downright full of hatred. If I were leader of the Titans, I would have kicked her butt out the moment she said something wise to me. 
Now that the Terra slash Terminator saga has ended and Joseph has joined the Titans, what'll be the fate of Adeline Wilson? And what will be the fate of Slade's longtime friend Wintergreen? Those are interesting questions. Hopefully they can be answered. Again, thanks for a superb inch issue. I really enjoyed it. It's funny here. Uh, folks, uh, you know, folks familiar with the Titans know that Terra was, she was created, uh, at least according to uh, Marvin George, she was created to die. You know, she was never meant to be, to stand the test of time. She was supposed to be here to test the Titans and to die. So, uh, Alan here thinks it's a, <laughs> they killed a character worth killing. So I guess uh, there's a, a little victory there. Now, our final letter comes from Donald in Seattle. Didn't we already read yours? Huh. He says, Dear Marvin George, well, it's over. After two years of careful planning on your part, a long, suspense-filled subplot was finally brought to an end in Finale. Was I happy with the way things were resolved? Well, after taking in the events of Finale, I have to say that things have probably worked out for the best. It was difficult to see Terra die and I had such hopes that she would come to terms with her betrayal of the Titans and truly end up a Teen Titan in every sense of the word. But it was only after reading the Titans' annual that I realized how hopelessly lost she was. As the priest said at her funeral, quote, When the one who dies is a y- as young as Tara Markov, all humanity must cry, unquote. Well, I know I did. That, that was Donald, not me. I did not cry when Tara died. Uh, a new Titan was born in Jericho, as an old Titan died in Terra. A new heart for his chosen path was found in Nightwing, as a loving, caring heart was crushed in Changeling. Finale was a true turning point in the Titans' career. Again, I applaud your efforts to make Teen Titans the finest comic on the market today. I look forward to what lies ahead in the year to come. A lot of these guys like the word finest, so there you go. But uh, Donald gets two letters here, one before and one after reading annual number three. And uh, he was affected. Uh, very, very deeply by her passing. I I really like the uh, the compare and contrast he put at the end of his letter here about Jericho coming where Terra was going and uh, and Changeling's heart being crushed, but uh, Nightwing finding you know a new path in his life. I think that's a uh, very interesting stuff and uh, kind of low key for for the Judas contract. A low key observation. That's pretty cool. Uh, now we wrap up with uh, some words from Marv. He says, We received a number of letters pointing out that Terra's brother Geoforce had died, and because he was buried in the earth, he was able to be returned to life. The assumption here is that Terra too will soon be leaving the ground for a return visit. Sorry, but the young Terra Markov is gone. To the literally hundreds of you who have begged us to bring her back, we can't. This death is not reversible. To those of you who understand understood her death, or at least accepted it, thank you for the comments. A little over two years ago, George and I worked out the full Terra storyline, including the finale. We'd been working toward the story for all that time, trying to make certain that we didn't, in the meantime, fall so much in love with our character that we decided to reverse her ultimate fate. It was hard, almost impossible, not to care for Terra, even though we knew how evil she was. Sometimes, just sometimes, mind you, certain characters take on a life and existence of their own despite anything you do. Tara was one of those characters. At any rate, Tara is gone, and we go on. But the effects of Tara's death are far from over, and they will continue to haunt the Titans for months to come. Take care, Marv Wolfman. So yeah, it's it's so weird to consider that Tara, Markov, Tara is one of the like seminal characters in Titans history and she was only around for a little while, you know, less than 2 years. 
at least the real terror. I mean, there's been numerous terrors that have come since that have kind of spit in the face of the original story. But for this, the real terror, she was around very, very briefly and made such a lasting impact to where almost every Titan's arc these days crescendos with a traitor being revealed, it seems. Uh, it's... It's either the uh, the Titans quit and they all walk away from the uh, cover of the book, or there's a traitor revealed, or the the threat of a traitor being revealed. It's it's uh, so weird how this character, who was little more than a blip uh, time wise, uh, has come to inform the way the Titan stories have been told ever since. But uh, that'll do it for the hot take, and uh, we'll just uh, pop into the wrap up. <laughs> Alrighty, that'll do it for this week And uh, if, uh, if it helps any of you To uh, get back to the past Get back to your childhood Get back to your seminal years You should listen to this episode About 12 times in a row It'll kind of be like a Jerry Lewis marathon And uh, you can say goodbye to summer The same way you did when you were a kid You can pretend that I'm preempting Steampipe Alley or something On, uh, on Channel 9 And <laughs> And uh, and you could picture like costume changes every time you listen to, uh, and and for one of them I'm tap dancing, another one I'm uh, playing a guitar or something. I don't know. But if you would like to share some of your uh, summer Labor Day trading card Titans uh, Jerry Lewis memories, uh, you could do so. You reach out to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. You can find us on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill at Reggie Reggie and at Ace Comics. You can check out the show site, which is actually been updated over at chrisandreggie.com. Uh, subscribe to us on all those places that I think I didn't mention at the beginning of this episode. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, we also just started up on Podcoin. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but uh, I think it might help people to uh, earn things while they listen. So if I can help you earn things while you listen, then more power to all of us, I suppose. Uh, that'll do it for today. I hope you all enjoy your day off, those of you who are, in fact, off today. And uh, so long for now. See ya. See ya.